welcome to another episode of Beaver Pod Life. Today we have with us Ed Knowles. Ed is a medicine specialist from Bell Equine and also carries out research at the RVC. Hi, Ed. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for coming today. So we're going to pick your brains a bit about um, carrying out research whilst also working in clinical practice, because I think that's a really interesting career path that you've chosen and you've done it very successfully, (laughs) including winning awards. So could you give us a little background to you and uh, your, your career in general, really? Yeah, sure. Okay. So um, I graduated back in 2005. And I think like most, like most vets of my generation, I thought I wanted to go into mixed practice. So I started applying for mixed jobs. um, And while I was applying for mixed jobs, bumped into someone that I'd seen practice with. And I ended up then taking a locum job at the PDSA. So I, that was supposed to be three months. I said, come for three months while you're looking for something else. Um, You know, you Three months is nothing. It'll take you that long to find a job anyway. So I started on a locum job there. And then that turned into a year and a half at the PDSA, which I absolutely loved. It was really, really good fun um, and a great, a great first job. But I still had I still had a sort of hankering for equine practice. Um, I decided I could leave the, the cows and the sheep behind. Um, and so I applied for equine internships and ended up going to Bell Equine. So I went to Bell in about 2007 and did my internship there. And to some extent, I guess I've I've been at Bell ever since, but in various different guises. So I started off doing my internship and, you know, you you mentioned research. I started off doing a little bit of research during the internship. I was was very, very lucky to work with Tim. Um, And and the the practice had a good sort of track record of of doing practice-based research. And so I started with a couple of projects as an intern. Um, after my internship, I stayed on as an ambulatory vet and I was still enjoying the research. So I so did some more um, small projects again, just sort of balanced on, alongside the ambulatory work. After that, I would got to the stage really where I'd enjoyed my ambulatory work and I'd enjoyed the research um, but I, I realised I wanted to specialise and one of the attractions for residency for me was being able to continue to do a lot of clinical work, particularly in the hospital, but also being able to continue with clinical research. And so I did a medicine residency and that was that was a slightly unusual position. It was shared between Bell and the RVC and... Um, that allowed me to keep doing my, my clinical work at Bell. And then I started doing some some laminitis research with the Clementis Gown, um, which, again, I, I really enjoyed. And I think that, that sort of laid the foundations for the PhD that I did subsequently. So after finishing my residency, I went back to Bell and, and was a, a general sort of... Um, medic and ambulatory vet so i did i did i you know i continue and actually i still continue to do a little bit of general practice as well as specialist medicine it's not all it's not all sort of um you know high-powered specialist stuff in the in the clinic there's there's quite a lot of just general run-of-the-mill work that I, that I still do um and i still enjoy it i still like the variety of that um but um after anyway after, after the residency I, I was back at um back at bell and I wanted to carry on 
doing research. And, and so I started talking to um, Nicola and, and, and some other people at the RVC and at other universities about the possibility of doing a part-time PhD. Um, and, and luckily, after after a couple of attempts, we, we managed to find some funding and we um, started this, you know, the, the, lamin- the big laminitis study in about 2015. And, and the setup for that was that I had a 50% contract at Bell and a 50% PhD position at the RVC. So that that took me six years. Um, so that took a, that took a while. Um, there were a couple of breaks in the middle to um, look after the kids and things. Um, and I finished that in 2021. Towards the end of that, um, I, mean, I was still working at Bell and um, ended up taking on the head of the hospital position, um, which I think was a, a little bit much at the time I was trying to write up the PhD and, uh, and look after the kids, but um, I, uh, I had that as well to do. Um, and now I am, I guess, continuing in the same, in the same vein. I, I think really my career has always been a balance of clinical work and research and that balance has shifted a little bit at different times in my career um, and I'm now working on a 40% contract at Bell and a 50% contract doing some postdoctoral work with Richard Piercy at the RVC. So I guess that's the that's a sort of brief brief summary of where we've uh, where we've got to. It's impressive. I mean, you've you've obviously, I think you're shifting the balance is the key word, isn't it? You've just kind of moved the fulcrum around to try and sort of suit suit you, suit home life, and um, and obviously you've you've enabled yourself to do the research which you've been so passionate about, as well as keeping your hand in clinical work. And and that's often something that concerns people is that they might enjoy both those things, but they just don't know how to how to get the two to work together. How easy would it be to sort of, for someone out there listening to be able to achieve that kind of balance in their life of those two two roles i think i think it's i think it's certainly achievable i think i've got to be honest that it's not always pretty um it can be a real mess and it can be quite a struggle because it can be difficult to do both things well and i think if you you know, and people often say to me, if you really want to be the best possible researcher you can, well, maybe you should just go and do full-time research. And equally, if you really want to be the best possible clinical specialist you can, well, maybe you should devote some more time to clinics. Um, and there is, and it can be quite stressful there. You know, I, I think the way that I've got it to work for me, um, and this is perhaps the opposite to, to, to what we're often told, is, is rather than setting boundaries, I actually have no boundaries. And so the way it works is actually, for me, it's easier to call a client on a day when I'm not in the practice to tell them about some lab results or to follow up on a case than it is to have a strict boundary and say, well, it must be research today and it must be clinical work tomorrow and, and to do it that way. I personally find it easier not to have those boundaries and I will call clients on, on you know, my sort of research days and, and and similarly if it's a bit quiet in the practice i'll, you know, I'll send a few emails that relate to my research and, and that's the way i found it easiest to juggle things um so in in terms I, I guess in terms of your question really is how how easy is it for people to do that i, I think the, the starting point is obviously yes it, it can be tricky but it is doable and i think there are lots of different ways of doing research 
there are lots of different ways of finding people to collaborate with. I think it's difficult to do lab-based basic science research um, in practice unless you've got a background and you've got a um, and, and you have a sort of project that's ready to go. Yeah. But it's certainly not, you know, it, it's certainly not impossible to get involved with particularly things like clinical audits and, and, and again, some of the sort of primary primary care type research that I think is is being done increasingly now is, is really important stuff. And there are an awful lot of questions that we come across as practitioners day in, day out. And, and really that's what motivated me is I, I found myself maybe not every day, but certainly at least every week, you'd come across a question and think, well, we don't really know the answer to this. Yeah. You know, should I give this drug or that drug? And how long should I give it for? And actually, what's the prognosis for this? And what percent of these horses will come back to work? And yes, some of those, you know, some of those answers we know, but but you come, you, you very frequently come across questions that we don't know the answers to. Yeah, there's lots, there's lots. And I think that's what's very true. There's lots of gaps of knowledge, isn't there? And I suppose it's, if it's something really sort of grasps your attention or really takes your fancy then you know you could be that person that researches in that area and it doesn't necessarily mean you have to completely drop all your clinical work there may be a, a route into the research that's um that's not been thought about and actually we mentioned it didn't we before when we were chatting that the beaver has started a course under roger smith's presidency uh, called innovation in practice and i think it's looking at this is trying to explore ways for people to get into research and innovation um without having to completely leave their day job you know in practice or in clinics whatever so you know that it's definitely becoming more popular and 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 hopefully more accessible for people to do these sorts of things um so what's what's your you got a reward at congress didn't you just gone <laughs> yeah um tell us a bit about your award and w- what it was and uh, and how you got it yeah yeah thank you um so this was the the peter rostell um evj open award which is awarded to the paper, oh, you, you probably remember the, the, the phraseology better than me, but the, the paper that best fulfills the aims of EVJ, I think, in terms of um, publishing, cl- effectively, it's clinically relevant and clinically applicable research. Um, and, th- and that was for the, the main paper that came out of my PhD, which was the work looking at laminitis prediction. And um, I, I guess just to sort of summarise that study, what, what, what we did at the start was we we put ourselves in the position of either the, the, the horse owner or the vet who's, who's standing there with a, a non-laminitic pony in front of them and think about, well, how, how do I know whether this pony is going to get laminitis or whether it's going to be the one of the next door stable or the one across the field? Now, I was very, very lucky to have a whole load of literature and and, and previous findings to build on you know this, this is a sort of you know, standing on everybody else's work in that we could look at all of the published risk factors and then try to tie as many of those together into a single study because there wouldn't be any point in taking a blood sample if we could tell everything simply by cresting x scores conversely this you know if actually the blood sample tells us everything then we perhaps don't need to look so carefully at the other the other factors. So really, I think it was a case of looking to all of this information that a vet could use to predict laminitis and try to understand of that what was the most what was the most important information and how accurate was it actually predicting laminitis. And and so obviously as I think you know, we, we found that the 
the most powerful predictor was was serum insulin concentrations. But again, I think we have to be we have to be pretty honest about this work and, and not sort of congratulate ourselves too much about it because at the end of the day we're still not very good at predicting laminitis there are loads of ponies wandering around with high insulin levels that don't get laminitis Mm -hmm. and there are similarly some that get laminitis despite having relatively low levels so in the grand scheme of things it's, it's not a bad predictor compared with other factors you know if we look at human medicine and things like cholesterol and blood pressure and those sort of you know predictive models but there's still a lot that we don't understand. And, and I think for me particularly, um, some of the genetic factors involved, we're just, we're, we're, we're not even scratching the surface on, to be honest. We need to, we need to take a, you know, a much harder look at what other factors really are, are, are triggering the, the development of laminitis. Yeah, and, and I think, like you say, insulin is, is the best thing we have right now, isn't it? And for, for GP vets out there listening, I think... You know, I've sat in forums and lecture theatres where we talk about these things and it's still it's still something we're needing to increase awareness of, isn't it? Insulin perhaps isn't still used enough um, out in practice, but it certainly is something that we should be using more and is valuable for, for vets. But you're right, there's so much more to the whole picture, isn't there, for laminitis and obesity? And- I, think, I think there is, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I think you're right, insulin is, is useful. And I think, again, we have to think about the... Um, the findings of my study and, and actually Nicola menzies Gale's study before, which was a very similar study, those focused on ponies. And we have to remember that this is a, the, the predictive power that we get out of those models is probably fairly applicable to pony populations in the south of England, which is where they were done. Can we take the same information and apply it to a, you know, 12 year old thoroughbred brood mare or to you know, a- another horse of some, some other type so I, I think we i think insulin is important it's it's clearly important but we need to think carefully about extrapolating um and applying that research do you know of anyone researching into the genetic side i know it's being done in dogs i think some i came across a, an old uni friend actually who's working on labrador genes um at cambridge university and i guess it's being looked at in humans i presume but um you know is is there is that being looked at in in horses i guess not yeah. yet Yes, I, th- I think there are there are some there have there have there has been some work and there are some studies underway at the moment um so i think we will get further and, and you know I, I may be wrong we may we, we, may, we may be barking at the wrong tree with the genetics it might be that in five or ten years time we find some other factor perhaps yeah. it's the the expression of the receptors that the in- insulin is working through or something else about the biology of the hoof that is important um so i'm sure there will be um further you know further discoveries that will help us to improve our ability to predict and, and ultimately our ability to understand the mechanisms of disease here. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good point. We don't know what we don't know, don't we? So that's the, no. that's the there could be a whole host of other other things that we're yet to discover. But but absolutely, as as clinicians, day in day out, we have to work with the tools we have at that point, and um and and knowing what's available and what's important is 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 really useful. And that's why research like yours and the award you got are, are good at highlighting that stuff to people because we're all time poor. It's really hard to find the time to read read the yep. journals and read the articles and keep up to date, particularly if you're in a GP situation where you've got to try and keep abreast so many different areas and subjects. But but you know what you've done is is sort of percolate really that information into something that's 
really understandable for 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 all vets and enable enable them to use it. So we thank you for that. Apart from anything else, you <laughs> thank you. Would be in a lot of a lot worse place without your research and and those those that do it. Um, so what's your plans for the future? So obviously you're just embarking on a new a new area of research. What will you t- tell us a bit about that before you sign off? <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, back at the start of this year, I started a postdoctoral position with Richard Piercy. Um, so again, I, I, I'm working sort of about forty percent of my clinical um, work at Bell, and the rest of the time I'm working with Richard. We're I guess. As I say, we're, we're continuing that sort of um, what I've what I've done so far of, of, of balancing research and clinical work, and I'm now looking at atypical myopathy. One of the things that we're interested in is looking at differences in individual susceptibility to the toxins, and why it is that in a field of you know ten horses, there'll be one that goes down with atypical myopathy, another one that has a slight increase in ck and another one that looks absolutely fine um and we know it's not simply the toxin exposure we we, we think there are other factors that relate to the way individual animals deal with the amount of toxin that they ingest and so i guess that's that's the big picture and then we're looking at a very a very small um chunk of that really that's really interesting. Yeah, because it's a pretty, pretty sort of distressing disease to deal with, isn't it? Particularly because of the unpredictability and um, and and vets trying to support owners and the questions that vets get asked about, well, what do I do to reduce the risk? You know, and it's difficult when we haven't got the information to really explain to them. So once again, yeah, you it, get... it, it is it is tricky. And I, and I think that ultimately what we'd like, again, is if we can understand individuals, individual susceptibility, then that takes us towards intervening with that and to developing treatment treatment strategies i think at the moment really it's avoiding the sycamores um and that's that's all that's all we can say um well that's not quite all we can say but that's that's the you know that that's the the main thing um but for some owners that's very difficult you know those those little um samaras will blow for for some distance um often people have trees on adjoining land that they can't you know they they can't deal with um and so it is. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a, a. It's going to be an ongoing problem for us. Yeah, we're gonna have to. We're gonna have to await your research to know more. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think one of your really really good points that you've just. I just wanted to recap on really was when you said about how you you don't really have boundaries and you you mix the two roles that you have and you just accept that you know they're gonna have to blend in a way and I think that's a really nice take home message because. For whatever you're doing in life, you know, whether it's you're working part time clinically because of kids or, you know, you're doing two different jobs for whatever reason. I think, yeah, some people really need that clear definition. And for others, that doesn't necessarily work as well. So it's nice to hear that you're not necessarily doing the kind of textbook thing that we're we're, we're often advised to do, which is to have those clear boundaries. You're making it work for you by by doing whatever work you need to do at that point and um, and just dividing your time up appropriately you know how you need to so that's quite a good life lesson I think for some of us <laughs> I think so and and, and and as you say I think that's often that's the reality of how lots of people live their lives anyway certainly if you've got kids then or, or you know or other responsibilities that that just you know when things need doing they need doing and and, and so everything has to become a bit of a um, a bit of a mix doesn't it 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm certainly like that. I can't, I can't sort of structure myself too much, otherwise I feel like I don't get things done. So I like that sort of flexibility in my in my life. Well, that was a very, very lovely podcast. I'm really glad that you you found the time to do this with us, and um, I'm grateful that you shared your experiences because I think it's going to inspire others that there's lots of options for for doing research, working clinically, and also the fields in which you've worked and the value that that we attribute to to what you've done, because it is really forwarding our knowledge and our ability to work as vets day to day. It's real life problems, basically, that you're working on. (laughs) Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks very much, Lucy. It's been good. It's been good to chat. But um, I I think also I, I, I owe a big thank you to all the people that have helped me, because with these sorts of roles, you do need the support of your colleagues um, and you need, in research, you need people to collaborate with as well. And so I think if there are, you know, if there are people who are thinking about doing research, do, you know, do reach out, go to conferences, ask questions at the end of talks, look for people that you might want to work with. And it's really, we have a nice profession. People are generally really friendly and supportive. And I think that that's, that's a real, a real key to making these things work. Yeah, that's that's another theme we've had lots and lots is is yeah, speak to people, speak to each other, and um, and don't be afraid to to ask questions and and reach out to each individuals. Thank you so much, Ed. Really enlightening and really inspiring. And uh, I can't wait to read your next lot of research because it's going to be great, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lucy. People coming up to you at Congress next year asking to come and work with you. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I, I, I love it. I love a question after a talk. Well, as you know, I could talk about that online all day. So <laughs> be careful what you wish for. Um. <laughs> Super. Thanks very much. And I'll leave you to get on with your day. Enjoy and take care. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Lucy.